This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we are looking this morning at verse 11. It's on page 944. A few Bibles. Romans 8, verse 11. Hear the Word of God. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Our Father, open to us your word now as we study it together to worship you, to learn from you, to feed upon you. Father, we pray that you would come down and that you would show us your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The beginning of this chapter from which our text is taken begins with that glorious declaration There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in for a minute. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And those who are in Christ Jesus are a breed apart. He goes on in the verses that follow to explain that there are basically now two kinds of people. The only distinction that really matters. There are those who are of the flesh and those who are of the spirit. And you probably know that when Paul uses those terms, he's not talking about the distinction between the soul and the body. But he's talking about the distinction between who we are in the flesh, which is his term for who we are in our fallen nature, who we are in our rebellion against God, who we are in our sinfulness before God as sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, and who we are as new creations in Christ Jesus, people of the Spirit, people who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, brought to faith in Christ, reconciled to God, and are in fact a new humanity here in this world now. Each one of you is either one or the other. You can't be both. You are either still dead in your sin, still under the condemnation and wrath of God because you have sinned against Him, or because you have followed Christ and are in Him, you are now reconciled to God. His wrath against your sin was poured out at Calvary, and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this salvation is bigger than this. Uh, Unfortunately for many Christians, it only goes so far as to say, well, that's right, I'm now in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and when I die, my soul will go to heaven. But you see, the biblical view of salvation is bigger than that. It's not just that you have been made alive spiritually, it's that you will one day be made alive physically. 
In other words, what Paul is saying when he comes here to verse 11, which is our text this morning, is that Christ's resurrection guarantees the believer's bodily resurrection. Now, as we look at verse 11, and where Paul is talking about this, there are three things I want us to consider. Uh, we find in this verse an assumption, we find in this verse a promise, and we find in this verse a condition. First, we find in this verse uh, an assumption, and the assumption is that Jesus is in fact raised from the dead. Look, notice what he says, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, there's the assumption that Jesus has in fact been raised. That assumption is based on a number of considerations. It's based on, for example, uh, the, the event itself, the testimony of those who witnessed these things, such as we read earlier in John chapter 20, and Matthew and Mark and Luke. The other four gospel writers also uh, record the events of the discovery of Jesus' resurrection. This assumption is backed up by the consideration of the change that came about in the disciples. You see this change, a drastic change, where they go from uh, from hiding in an upper room after Jesus was crucified for fear of the Jews, for fear that something similar might happen to them, to a, a boldness in declaring that Christ is in fact alive, a boldness uh, in which they are willing to put their lives on the line. In fact, others noted this in the book of Acts, uh, which begins with the the giving of the Holy Spirit and and tells about the spread of the church in its early days, Acts chapter 4, you see the difference. They're not hiding in a room anymore out of fear. Uh, the, the, The authorities, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized, it says, that they had been with Jesus. And they tell them, don't don't preach anymore about Jesus. And how do Peter and John answer? They say, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you judge. But we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. So it's backed up by the narrative of those who saw it. It's backed up in this dramatic change, a rapid change that took place because they recognized Jesus was alive and Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit just as he had said. The tomb was empty. Even the Jewish authorities recognized that and they came up with a story. They said, go and tell everybody his disciples stole the body away. In other words, they were trying to pull off a hoax. You hear that up to the present day. Maybe it was all just a big ruse, just a a scam. But if you stop and think, that really doesn't hold water. Number one, why would the disciples do that for a man who, if he was in fact dead, had lied to them and deceived them? At worst, at at the least, had disappointed them. Why would they concoct some great story about he was alive for some guy who who had let them down? Some guy who had lied to them. Well, they they wouldn't do that. That doesn't make any sense at all. Plus, they saw what happened to Jesus. They knew if they continued on talking about him, they could be next. Why would they Why would they be willing to die for that? You know, uh, Chuck Colson, uh, who started uh, Prison Fellowship Ministry, became a believer when he was in prison. 
when he went to jail for his involvement in the Watergate scandal back in the 70s. Some of you, many of you are old enough to remember that, many not. Uh, there was a break-in at the Watergate office complex hotel there in Washington. It was traced back uh, to the Republicans and even to the president. Uh, and in the scandal that followed, uh, it led to eventually the president, President Nixon, resigning from office, the only president who has resigned his office. Well, Chuck Colson was in the government, was part of that, and went to jail for that. And talking about a hoax and this claim that the resurrection was a hoax, I, I love Colson's response to that. He says, my answer to that comes from an unlikely source, Watergate. He said, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America, who were intensely loyal to their President. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence. That is, he testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the President about what was really going on. The real cover-up, the lie, could be held together for only two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing was embarrassment. Maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. What about the disciples, Colson says? Twelve powerless men. Facing not just embarrassment, not political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. He says, don't you think one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? Colson says, you see, men will give their lives for something they believe to be true. They will never give their lives for something they know to be false. The Watergate cover-up reveals the true nature of humanity. Even political zealots at the pinnacle of power will, in the crunch, save their own necks, even at the expense of the ones they profess to serve so loyally. But the apostles could not deny Jesus because they had seen him face to face and knew he had risen from the dead. He says, so you can take it from an expert in cover-ups. I've lived through Watergate that nothing less than a resurrected Christ could have caused those men to maintain to their dying whispers that Jesus is alive and is Lord. Two thousand years later, nothing less than the power of the risen Christ could inspire Christians around the world to remain faithful despite prison, torture, and death. A hoax, not a chance. The necessity of the resurrection, also behind this assumption that it was necessary. Paul argues this eloquently in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is, is dead, if Christ is still in the grave, then we're still in our sins. Paul says, worse, we've been out spreading lies about God, that he raised Jesus from the dead if he didn't do it. But if Christ is still dead, we're still in our sins. Let's be clear. We're not talking about new hope, uh, uh, the, the, the metaphor for new life. We're talking about the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus did not bodily come out of that grave, then there is absolutely no point whatsoever in our being here this morning. Bodily, physical resurrection is a necessity. Now, what is the implications of this assumption that Jesus is raised? Well, it is that this is not a matter of historical or religious opinion. 
you know, whether you prefer thick crust or thin crust. This is a matter of historical record, a matter of historical fact. It's like the fact that you need to take an umbrella with you or a raincoat when it's raining or that you need to wear a coat when it's cold. This is something that happened and something that each of us has to reckon with in our lives. Because Jesus said he would go to Jerusalem, he would be crucified, and on the third day he would be raised. Uh, He might be able to predict he'd be crucified for the kinds of things he was saying, knowing how the authorities felt about him. But it's going out on a limb to say on the third day he's going to be back and he's going to be alive. And yet that's exactly what happened as a matter of historical record, witnessed by many, died for by many. Jesus also said he's coming back. Jesus said that there will be a day of judgment, a day of reckoning, where we will stand before God, accountable to him. And you will either stand before God in your sins, in your rebellion, in your wickedness, and be judged for that, accountable for that. God's standard is perfect obedience, by the way. Or you will stand before the judge, cleansed by the blood of Christ, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, already declared righteous in Christ Jesus. And your judgment day happened at the cross 2,000 years ago. Which is it for you? You see, this isn't a matter of opinion. This is a matter of historical record and what will, in fact, happen at the end of human history. So the first thing that we find in this text, and it's easy to miss it, but it's, it's, it's prominent there, is this assumption that Jesus has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Second thing that we find in this passage is a promise, a promise that God will raise you up as he raised Jesus. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. We are very thankful as Christians that upon our deaths, should Christ delay his return, that our souls immediately will be with him in glory, in his presence, uh, in great joy, in great comfort, in great peace, in the presence of God. We're thankful for that. But again, that's not ultimately the Christian's hope. Because you see, Jesus died not just to redeem our souls, but to redeem our bodies. He died to redeem his creation. He died to redeem our bodies. Notice Paul is emphatic about that in verse 11. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. You see, just as he raised up Christ's mortal body, his physical body there in the grave, Peter and John get there and go in and they investigate, they look at it, know his body's not there, the grave clothes are there, there's the cloth, the shroud that covered his head, the cloth's there, it's off by itself, separate place. His mortal body was raised, so our mortal body will be raised as well. You see, the Bible teaches that at Jesus' return, there will be a general resurrection of the dead and reconstitution of our bodies uh, those outside of Christ to everlasting judgment, everlasting condemnation, those in Christ to everlasting life in a remade, a renewed new heavens and a new earth. In other words, a renewed universe. Christ's death is going to renew not just you and me, but this creation. 
And the scriptures say that we will live then in the new heavens and the new earth, a very physical, tangible, solid, real place. Uh, now, we can think about a lot of details, uh, uh, developing that idea, thinking what that will be like. Uh, it will be at least as beautiful, I suspect, being sinless and unfallen, more beautiful than that day we see out there today. There'll be a lot to do. There'll be a lot to enjoy. Work to be done by minds and bodies no longer weighted down by sin. No longer slowed and diminished by the effects of sin in this world. Sickness and aging and injury and just human frailty. A new heavens and a new earth. You see, that's the Christian's hope. Say so we believe in the resurrection of the body. We're not talking about Jesus' body when we say that in the Apostles' Creed. We already say it was raised from the dead on the third day. But later there, toward the end, we believe in the resurrection of the body. We're talking about our body. My body, your body, you who are in Christ, the body's raised up, glorified, like Jesus' glorified, resurrected body. So there's an assumption here. There's also a promise here that this same Spirit, uh, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, God the Father, will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection will be a Trinitarian action. God will raise you up. The Spirit will give life to you. It's Christ who atoned for you. That's the promise. That's what we look forward to. That's what Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of. Our future resurrection in a glorified body. So that's the promise. Sin is an assumption, is a promise. Finally, there is here a condition. You'll notice that this verse begins... With the word, if. A condition. If. If this is true, then this is true. Notice verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That is the condition of the promise. He's not saying everybody will experience this resurrection to glory and to life. But if this condition is true, then this will be true of you. What is the condition? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, God the Father did by his Holy Spirit. Now, what he is saying here essentially is that this is a Christian. This is a believer in whom does the Holy Spirit dwell? Well, only in the Christian. The person has become a Christian because the Holy Spirit has come and given new life where there was spiritual death. The Spirit is with us as Christ's presence. Christ told his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And he was referring to the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit is not Jesus, but the Spirit does minister the, the power of Christ's resurrection, Christ's presence to us. John 14, John 16 speaks of these things, the presence of Christ with us. The Holy Spirit is to the Christian that that deposit, guaranteeing all of those things that the Father has promised to us. Ephesians 1 is that deposit, that earnest, that guarantees everything else that God will come, that God has promised to us. You see, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. 
The Spirit doesn't dwell in everyone. The Spirit dwells in the Christian, the person who, by God's grace, has recognized his sinfulness before a holy God, recognized the abundance of God's provision in Jesus, and said, Lord, I need you. I cannot be right with God, but you have done everything necessary for me to be right with God. And so, Lord Jesus, recognizing my sin for what it is, I believe in you, and I follow you. And from this day on, you are my Savior, and you are my Lord. Now, how do you know? How do you know if you've done that? How do you know if that has happened in your life? Well, you'll be different in a, in a, in a good way, in some good ways. Maybe different in some ways that the world thinks is, is, is bad, but there will be a difference. How can, how can God himself, by his Holy Spirit, take up residence within you and you go on living like the world? Let me give you some specific ways you'll be different. There'll be a different way of life, different character. Uh, there's a reason Paul in Galatians chapter 5 refers to the fruit of the Spirit. It talks about the works of the flesh all these different kinds of sin, the things that characterize us in our fallenness and our rebellion against God. But then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. There will be certain characteristics, certain ways of behaving that begin to inevitably come out. They won't be perfect, but they will definitely be perceptible. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Paul says, these are the kinds of things that begin to make themselves apparent in your life if Christ has redeemed you, if his Holy Spirit, as Paul says here, dwells in you. There'll be a different appetite. You see, in our fallenness, we have an appetite for sin. That's what we want to do. But for the believer, there's a new appetite. There is an appetite, a hunger for God, to know him to live for him, to please him, a desire to know Christ, a desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit, a desire to know what the Bible says, what it tells us about God's saving work, who we are because of that, and how we live then because of that new life that we have in Christ Jesus. So a different life, there'll be a different appetite, different things we hunger for. There'll be different priorities in our lives that are reflected in how we spend our time that are reflected in how we spend our money, that are reflected in how we expend our energy. What are those priorities in your life? Do they reflect a new person in Christ Jesus? Or do they reflect the same priorities any unbelieving neighbor in your subdivision might have? So there's a new life, there's a new, there are new appetites, there are new priorities that begin to manifest themselves uh, in our lives, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, that is to say, if you are, in fact, one of God's own through faith in Christ. There's nothing more vital, and there's no better use of Easter Sunday than to examine yourselves and say, do I see evidence of the Spirit of the resurrected Savior in my life? What is my life characterized by? What are those things I hunger for? What are the priorities that I see in my life? Your friends, there's nothing more vital than to make sure that you are one of those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. One of those who has been changed and is being changed by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. His power 
at work in your life. In another place, Paul says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love Him. God has something fantastic, something unimaginable in store for those who love Him, those who are in Christ Jesus. And the good news is, because Christ has been raised, that we who have trusted in Him will see it. We will hear it. We, like Christ, will enter into all that God has in store for us. If Jesus, then you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for a living Savior. Father, we thank You that because He lives, we who have taken refuge in Him by faith in Him will live as well. Surely, Father, this is in this world of death, in this world of sin, in this world of misery and pain. This is good news. And we praise You for what You have done, for this victory You have won in Christ Jesus. And Lord, pray that by grace, we, all of us here, may share in it. We pray it in His name. Amen.